Well, hello everyone and happy Sunday. We're going to be beginning a little mini series in the book of Romans here today. We're going to spend about four studies in its eighth chapter, so the very well-known Romans chapter eight, if you want to go ahead and turn there. And if you're using the Bibles provided, you'll be able to find it there on page 944. So it's right there in the middle of the New Testament. As we begin, anyone ever heard of something called ADX Florence? It's otherwise known as the Florence Administrative Maximum Facility. Otherwise known as the Alcatraz of the Rockies, the most secure federal prison in all of the United States, located in the middle of Colorado. ADX Florence is what's known as a supermax prison. And for your awareness, supermax prisons are designed to be entirely inescapable. So it's fortified on about 50 acres of land at the foot of the Rockies. And it's equipped with entirely soundproof walls and 1,400 remote-controlled steel doors, 12-foot-high razor wire fences. Some have commented in their own words that it's kind of like a cleaner version of hell. And not only has nobody ever escaped this facility, no one's even tried. ADX Florence was built in 1994 to house those who pose the most extreme security threats. It's currently home to El Chapo, the notorious drug leader of the Sinaloa cartel, as well as Jahar Sarnaev, you may know as the Boston Marathon bomber. And so in other words, the chances of escaping this kind of prison is virtually zero. What about working with other inmates, communicating with someone on the outside, corrupting the guards, all the things you see on television? Well, there's none of that. It's essentially impossible. And yet I must ask, if it were to happen, what could a potential escape look like? Hypothetically, if one were to escape, how? Once destined for death behind those bars, could one really ever, through intense planning or manipulation or a remarkable series of events, could they ever taste freedom again? Well, stay tuned, because at the end of our time together today, we're going to have an answer. I'm going to give you a blueprint in great detail of exactly how one could make such a great escape. So Romans chapter 8, prison break edition here at NCBC. Now, we're going to be parachuting into this chapter, which finds itself right in the middle of the book of Romans. And that can be a little dangerous, because here's the thing with the book of Romans. It's arguably the most parachuted into book in the Bible, uh, and not even just on the chapter level, but especially on the individual verse level as well. And the reason I say it can be dangerous is that a lot of the times when you do that with the Bible, you end up taking verses out of context. And this is done by both Christians. It's done by opponents of Christianity as well. You want to prove a point? Well, here is a verse. You can't eat shellfish or you can't wear clothes of two different fabrics. Have you heard that before from opponents of Christianity? Too often what this does is this method fails to capture the biblical author's intent for that text, which means we often fail to capture the meaning of that text, which is ultimately what really matters. Jeremiah 29:11. I know the plans for you to, to cause you to prosper, to give you a future and a hope. Or how about Hebrews 4:12? 
the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Or the athlete's all-time favorite from Philippians 4, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If any of you have that tattooed on your body, I am sorry for that. And what about in Romans then? Maybe you've heard these before. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What's Romans 3.22? What's Romans 3.24? How about 10.9? If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And finally, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. And on and on and on we could go. And it's not that we always get the meaning of these verses wrong when we isolate them. Again, though that may be the case, it's just at the very least what happens is we do so at the expense of the bigger picture, at the expense of what God is really getting at. So before we get into our text today, it's just four verses, uh, I want to make sure we're not just parachuting in and then sprinting once we touch the ground, but that we're kind of dropping in, we're taking a good look at what's around us, we're recognizing the environment we find ourselves in, and then we're going to proceed on, all right? So very quickly, Romans 8, it's not just an epic chapter, though it definitely is an epic chapter, perhaps the most epic chapter. But it's actually the conclusion. It's a conclusion chapter of a much larger argument that's taken up the whole of the book of Romans so far. Uh, recognizing that this isn't a sermon on the whole book of Romans, and it is a, a sermon on Romans 8, uh, we're just going to do some high-level handles to hold on to as we drop in and descend into our text for today. So if you have your Bibles there, go ahead and flip back to Romans chapter 1 with me for a moment. I'll give you just a second. So Romans chapter 1. What you'll do is you'll see in verses 1 through 17 is basically the Apostle Paul's introduction to the Roman church. Keep in mind he's never met this church before. And yet he's inviting them to join him in this letter. And right there in verse 15 in chapter 1 he tells them how eager he is to preach the gospel to them. So yes, Christians need to hear the gospel just as much as non-Christians. And then in the rest of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul basically describes the great problem with humanity. So if you're here today and you just feel like this world is not how it's supposed to be, that wars and violence and natural disasters and pandemics and oppression are wrong, that they're like cancers in this world, and you wonder how and why is it like this? Well, the Apostle Paul is right there with you. And in the rest of chapter 1, what he does is he tells you exactly why all of that is happening, which is because of human rebellion against God. And then in Romans 2, he kind of catches you in a trap. Because if Romans 1 is all about what's wrong with humanity... Romans 2 is a, just in case you thought this didn't apply to you, O righteous one, it does. And then Romans 3 proceeds on by convicting everybody of their sin. If you look at chapter 3, verse 10, it says, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. And then no one does good. No, not even one. So we have an introduction, 
We have the problem with humanity. And then in verse 21 of chapter 3, we begin to see a solution to our problem. So chapter 3, verse 21 says that now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. And then in verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It then goes on to say what this redemption is and how it's to be received by faith. And then what chapters 4, 5, and 6 do is it shows what it looks like to be justified by faith. The benefits of being justified by faith. And then chapter 7, so the one right before our text for today, deals with the question, okay, well, all of this is true and I've been justified and redeemed and made alive in Christ but why doesn't it always feel like that? Why is life still so hard? Why is sin still so hard? Pastor Joel Kurz, our friend up in Baltimore, preached on this just a few months ago about how in our natural state we know what is right, yet we don't possess the power in and of ourselves to actually carry it out. And that is what ushers us into chapter 8 which brings all of this together into a final conclusion. So to recap the book of Romans so far, it's basically one giant gospel, chapters 1 through 7 leading into 8. It says, this world and this universe has a problem. You have a problem. I have a problem. We all have a problem. We've rebelled against the God of the universe and have brought death and suffering upon ourselves and upon this world as a result. And if any of us are foolish enough to think that doesn't apply to us, this text promises us that it does. Your human experience promises you it does. You've tried so many times in so many ways to be the best version of yourself. And to live up to the standards of this world and to be as perfect as you possibly can be, yet even in that have fallen dramatically short. Not to mention have fallen even insanely much more short than the standards of an almighty God. But here's the thing. Romans 3 details that God has provided a solution. You can be restored. I can be restored by faith to what we were originally designed to be by the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ who was put forward to pay the penalty of our sin in, uh, of our sin on our behalf. And by repenting from our sin and believing in his perfect life, death, and resurrection on our behalf, we can be joined to him. We can live forever with him in perfect joy, in perfect blessedness, and pleasures forevermore with him. Romans 4, 5, and 6. But I want that to be true, Jeremy. You have no idea. I want so badly to believe. I want so badly to experience this kind of fullness. But if I'm honest, day after day, like I said, this life is hard. And I don't always feel that. I don't always feel united to Christ. I am struggling. And I've got to tell you, if I'm honest, I can't help but doubt sometimes. Enter Romans chapter 8. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 1 through 4 now. If you want to flip back there, let's read it. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Well, I have four points for you from this text today, and they correspond with each verse. So verse 1, 2, 3, and 4, points 1, 2, 3, and 4. So point number one, something has happened. Something has happened. That's point number one. Point number two, well, what has happened? Point number three, how it has happened, followed by point number four, why it has happened. So something has happened, kind of like a banner or an umbrella, and then we're going to look under it at what has happened, how it has happened, and ultimately why it has happened. Point number one, something has happened, and to start off, this isn't just any something, this isn't like a tree fell down. Or a new store has opened up. No, this is something that has altered the very fabric of the universe. It's like when sin entered the world and something fractured this universe, which is why things are the way that they are. Well, something cosmic has happened here that has begun to repair and restore that which was set off orbit, that which appeared lost forever. And that's what verse 1 is here in chapter 8. The statement of all statements. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Remember in this verse, Paul is concluding what he said in chapters 5, 6, and 7 especially. What it means to be justified by faith. That's what the therefore is therefore. Since you are justified before a holy God by faith, since before the throne of God you have a strong and perfect plea, therefore there is now no condemnation. If we take a quick look at what came immediately before this statement, you'll have his final thoughts in Romans 7 about the tension of not always feeling like we experience the benefits of being justified by faith. He basically says, I keep doing what I don't want to do, and I keep not doing what I do want to do. Any of us ever been there before? Several of you are right there today. Several of you have been there for weeks, months. And what then is going on? Why is this happening? And that's Paul's sentiment in chapter 7, verse 24. If you look up there, he exclaims, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And he continues, But thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? In other words, the struggle is real. My mind and my flesh wage war against each other. I keep trying and trying to do good. I have tried to be the best version of myself. I have tried to be good enough for God. Or better yet, I can't even get myself to start because every time I feel like I take a step forward, I just take two steps backward. And the bitter conflict is exhausting. Perhaps there's no hope for me. 
Perhaps I am a complete failure destined for judgment in this life and the next. Maybe I'm a complete fraud. The Bible has an answer for that. God has an answer for that. And that is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, something has happened. Paul has gone from saying, no one does good. No, not one. And that all have fallen short of the glory of God and are therefore condemned to now saying there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You see, it's not that there's nothing worthy of condemnation. Some have translated it that way in church history. We know that not to be true, or maybe most of us, those who are truly honest with ourselves, we know that it's not that there's nothing worthy of condemnation. It's that the Christian is now beyond the reach of condemnation because he or she is in Christ and is a citizen of his kingdom. Kind of like if you broke the law in a foreign land, you really did. You really are guilty but you've since returned to your home country, your homeland, and those foreign authorities have absolutely no jurisdiction over you anymore. By faith, you are now hitched to Christ's wagon as you cross into the kingdom of God, and that which seeks to condemn you for your transgressions has no option but to stop in its tracks. Because, brothers and sisters, in Christ, sin has no jurisdiction over you anymore. The most extraordinary freedom we can experience in this life is being united to Christ in his victory over the devastating dominion of sin. It's as Herman Bovink said, he said, the chain of salvation cannot be broken. And this is a reality now. Now, it says there is therefore now no condemnation. The moment you repent and believe in him, you become hidden in him. Amen? No matter what you've done... What you will do, there is no condemnation for you in Christ. That applies to all present guilt, all present shame, all previous guilt, all previous shame, as well as all future wrath and judgment when he finally destroys all sin and all evil forever. And let me just be clear about what this doesn't mean. This doesn't mean that we now have a license to sin in any way. That's not what we're talking about. Paul's dealt with that back in Romans chapter 6 when he says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can that which was dead to sin now still live in it? Or in other words, it's absolutely foolish to suggest that you should now just go back to living like a dead person. It certainly does not mean that. Repentance is a fundamental ingredient. But it also doesn't mean that we now have some kind of immunity to sin. This is what it looks like to live in the already, but not yet. Our flesh is certainly still fallen in this life. We know that. We feel that. That's why we need to die, to shed these bodies. Just as Pastor Joel had said, this doesn't mean that sin has no presence in your life, because it does. It just means it has no power in your life to control and condemn you. And so, yes, we still sin. It's just that we're no longer a slave to sin, so we ought to stop living like ones. So if you're feeling absolutely torched or drowned in despair today, you are not condemned. You need not fear God. You need not fear man. You need not fear circumstances or suffering or temptation or death. Because sin has no jurisdiction over you anymore, Christian. 
Death has no jurisdiction over you anymore, Christian. You are blameless. You are finally free. Because something has happened. About 2,000 years ago, a man was making waves in the first century Palestine. And one eyewitness reported the following. He said, this man came to Nazareth where he had been brought up, as was his custom. And he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah, who lived almost a thousand years prior, was given to him, handed to him. He unrolled the scroll and he found the place where it was written and he read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And it says he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And all of the eyes in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And this serves perfectly as the bridge straight into our second point. What has happened? So something has happened which has eliminated condemnation in the life of the Christian. Point number two, what exactly is that? What exactly has happened? Verse two reads, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So what has happened Something called the law of the spirit of life, it says, has gone to war with what's called the law of sin and death. And it's one. The law of the spirit of life was victorious as it sets the Christian free. And notice who's responsible. Christ Jesus. Other translations say that it was through Jesus Christ or because of Jesus Christ that this war happened and that the law of the spirit of life was triumphant. Now, let's take a look at these two laws that are, are going head to head here. Over on one side, on this corner, you have the reigning and defending and undisputed juggernaut in the form of the law of sin and death. That's describing the Mosaic law, one of the most important features of the Old Testament and of God's covenant people. And obedience was required under the Mosaic law to be in relationship with God and to avoid exile. And the law was giving, I've got to be really clear on this, not to take life away, but to give life to God's people. To show us God's holiness and to teach us about his righteousness and his purity and his character. But because of the flesh, that law, instead of becoming a blessing, became a curse. It became a prison and they became bound by the law. And despite people knowing exactly what was expected of them, they were just remarkably unable to keep it day after day, hour after hour, week after week, year after year. Like you would think at this point, all right, if they knew exactly what they were supposed to do, that they might experience at least some kind of form of success, right? Think of like the hardest of exams, like, like scoring a perfect score on the LSAT or running a sub-four-minute mile. Both seem almost ridiculous, just impossible, yet they still happen year after year for a select few. Well, then what sets this apart? Why can't this be done? 
It's because we're not just talking about some sort of standardized test or some sort of athletic feat. All of those just measure us up against other people. We're talking uh, not about people or about creatures. We're talking about the creator God and his standard for perfection. This law simply exposed our ineptitude. It exposed our dire need for forgiveness. In the previous chapter in Romans 7 verse 5, it says that while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to get this bear fruit for death. Think of like if you look yourself in a mirror, as you probably did this morning, and after all of these years, let's just say you hate who you've become. You hate who you're becoming. But rather than seeking to change in light of it, you continue to spiral down the same path and fall prey to the same vicious cycle of sin over and over and over again that I might add we love. That's what the words here indicate. They indicate a kind of directing power over us that the law has, that sin and death have, like a steering wheel on a vehicle. In fallen humans, attempting to live perfectly according to the law of God is quite, uh, I'll just borrow from Montgomery Scott here, it's like jumping from a car off a bridge and into a shot glass. It's not only impossible, it's incalculable because you will fail. I will fail every single time, just as the people of old did, just as the people from all time and every generation did and have. That is why it's called the law of sin and death here. How many people do you know who have never died? Attempts to fulfill the law in its entirety only ever lead to sin and to inevitable death. You want to carve out a path for yourself and try to live a life that's good enough or that quote-unquote puts more good out into the world than bad or by simple external church-going religiosity? You are walking a plank to your eternal grave, friends, where there will be nothing but death and judgment and condemnation upon you forever. So over here, we have the law of sin and death. Now, over here, we have what's called the law of the spirit of life. Now, we don't really get this language or terminology often or really at all in the New Testament, at least not put in this way exactly. So scholars vary a little bit on exactly what Paul is saying here. Really, it's Jesus has died for you and the spirit of life now lives in you. That's all we could ever need. Prior to chapter 8, the Spirit is only mentioned like three or four times in the whole book of Romans. And here in chapter 8, he's mentioned 21 times. Yes, the Spirit is also a he. It's not an, he's not an it, as some would have you these days. And the, the question becomes, well then, what is this chapter about? Well, with 21 references to the Spirit, I think very likely the Holy Spirit plays a major role. And then if you take into account what Paul has said back in chapter 5, if you want to go ahead and turn there really quick, chapter 5, verse 5, one of the few occasions of the Spirit's mentioned prior to chapter 8. And what does it say is the role of the Spirit? It says, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So what does the Holy Spirit do? Well, he allows us to have hope by pouring the love of God into our hearts. 
where the power and the authority of the Holy Spirit, God Himself, who dwells within you and I, right this very moment, has wiped out the power and authority of sin in your life. He's cleansed you. He's freed you. Christ's death and resurrection was just like the opening ceremony of the Spirit to be poured out on you and I. To free us from the grip of in condemnation of sin and death as He carries you on to that final day, Christian. Almost like you're hoisted on one's shoulders as you walk through a crowd. Let me just say, it's critical to note that this is not just that the Spirit grants us power to live according to God's Word, though of course that's true. It's that He specifically convinces us of Christ's finished work on the cross. And as you receive that outpouring more and more, you are strengthened with power to truly and finally believe that indeed there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? So NCBC, our prayer from this text should not just be, please give me the strength not to sin, but more so, please give me the strength to believe in Christ's finished work on the cross for my sin on my behalf. That's why our discipling relationships and, and our accountability partners should not just be filled with, what have you done this week? How have you failed this week? But rather, how convinced are you that your sin has been paid for? That you're free? That you are not condemned? Don't just go after each other's actions, church. Go after each other's hearts. Because the fact that condemnation does not come upon us is not because our flesh becomes rid of sin, but because God condemned sin in Christ. And so this should cause us to ask then, well, how does this work? Which leads us into our third point, a quick one, how it's happened. So something has happened. What has happened now? How it has happened. Look with me at verse 3. It says, God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. So the Christian has been set free, verse 2. For, or because, you can substitute that in there at the start of verse 3, God has stepped in. God has put his son forward. And now we see exactly how Jesus did it. The material work of Christ. It says that God had to do what we couldn't do and wouldn't do because of our fallenness. With the law being what should have been a blessing, now having become a curse. And so Christ steps in and he says, I will take it on. I will do what the people cannot do. I will do what the people will not do. And it says there, if you look closely at the words, it says he came in what's called the likeness of sinful flesh, which is kind of a weird combination of words at first glance if you think about it. The likeness of sinful flesh. What Paul is doing here is he's describing materially what happened in the incarnation, what happened when God the Son entered into his creation and became a man. It's been said that what Paul is doing here is essentially venturing out into the very edge. He's, he's teetering at the very precipice of what is possible to communicate through human language. It makes trying to explain, like, like quantum mechanics, look like trying to explain the difference between a circle and a square. 
And he says that Christ was sent in the likeness of sinful flesh here, and he's choosing his words so carefully. The beloved theologian, John Stott, takes care to draw attention to the fact when he says that it's not just, quote, the likeness of flesh, nor is it just, quote, in sinful flesh. Because in the likeness of flesh, what that would mean is that it would mean he wasn't truly human. Would it mean that he is perhaps like humanoid, like some sort of supernatural intelligence, a mere projection of a human being? And on the contrary, what it's not is it's not, it doesn't say that it's just he came in sinful flesh. That would mean that Jesus was fallen, that he was indeed sinful, which we know was not the case. That's why it's not either of those. That's why it's in the likeness of sinful flesh, because his humanity was both real and sinless simultaneously. And the earth had not seen such a human nature like this since Adam, where sin and flesh need not coincide together. Surely it's the dawn of a new era. This is what it means when we hear that God made him who knew no sin, to be sin. That's what the words for sin there mean in verse 3. It's him becoming the sin offering, becoming sin in our place on the cross, where the Prince of Peace took on our sinful flesh without himself having an ounce of sin in him. Brothers and sisters, what a great joy and comfort it is to know that we have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our every weakness. A great God who humbled himself even to the point of death on a cross for you. There is no pain. There is no sorrow. No betrayal that you are currently feeling or have felt that the God of the universe did not himself experience to the fullest extent. And he beat every single one of them. For you. He beat every single one of them for you. God's plan A from the beginning of time, his only plan finally fulfilled for you. The Father had to put Christ forward in order to condemn what needed to be condemned. That he made, uh, uh, that he might be the righteous judge and the worthy justifier of our sins. Not just to be a good teacher, not just to be a prophet or to set a good example of what kindness and love look like. I hope that as you hear your professors or your pluralistic friends regurgitate that kind of nonsense that you kind of throw up in your mouth. No, this is why Jesus came. He came to fulfill the law in the flesh itself. To do what none of us could. To do what none of us would. When we say that Jesus came and lived the perfect life, this is what we mean. And when we say that Jesus died the death we deserve, this is what we mean. This is what Paul means when he said that Christ was put forward as a propitiation or as a substitute by his blood to pay the payment for our sin in full that we might simply receive him by faith. There is therefore now no condemnation. How? Well, verse 3, because God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin he condemned sin in the flesh. And this brings us to our fourth and final point for today. Why it happened. The purpose of all of this. What is God doing? Look at verse 4 once again with me. 
It says, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. This is why I, I, I love the connecting words in Scripture, church. Don't ignore them. I already pointed out that four up in verse two and three can be replaced with because, so it helps you read it a little bit better. It tells you the reason or the grounds for what's going on here. And then here we have the words in order that. We see this all time in the new all the time in the New Testament. In order that so that, that, and so on and so forth. We're being told exactly why we're reading what we're reading in Scripture. We're being told exactly why God is doing what He is doing. Christ condemned sin in the flesh in order that, or so that, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. The purpose of all this, friends, is your righteousness. It's so that you and I could be justified in his sight as we are right this very moment as you sit in your chairs and he looks at you, he sees righteous. He sees blameless child of mine. It's so that your righteousness, your standing with God would not ultimately be dependent on you, but upon him. It says the Puritan John Bunyan put it, thy righteousness is in heaven. What a glorious thought today, Christian, that no matter where you are, where you've been, what you've done to not deserve it, no matter what you may think of yourself, even right now, if you are in Christ, your righteousness is in heaven. Because it's not your righteousness, it's his. We may feel condemned in our consciences for how filthy we are, Yet in reality, we are not condemned by God because of how righteous Christ is. Your righteousness hinges on Jesus' life and death. And so, did it happen or did it not? Did Jesus live the perfect life, die the death that we deserve, and resurrect or did it not? And that is where your faith comes in. Your faith in the death and resurrection of Christ matters because it's the death and resurrection of Christ that determines whether or not you're right with God. So that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. On this last part, I can't help but stress enough what this doesn't mean, brothers and sisters. The law being fulfilled in us who walk, not, uh, who walk according to the Spirit what that is, it's not just that we're now enabled to obey God, though of course that is also true. What this is saying is that God now considers us to have fully met the law's demands because of Christ's obedience for us. It's truly as though we've already obeyed all of God's law perfectly because of Christ in us. That's what it means to be fulfilled in us. I mean, is there better news than this, Christian? Can it really be? It's as, it's as Calvin put it. He said, the law being fulfilled in us isn't so much the cause for our deliverance as it is the method for our deliverance. And this is talking about justification, not sanctification. It's not that we might be able to now fulfill God's perfect standard, like he kind of opened the gate and now it's on us to run and fulfill God's perfect standards. It's so that we now live as those who have had that perfect standard credited to us in Christ. 
Now, what does that look like? How do we walk or live according to the Spirit rather than the flesh? Stay tuned, because that's what our next text is about for next time. But one way of thinking about it is, for example, you don't read your Bible every day to earn God's love, but you do so because you're already so loved by Him. You don't serve the church to to earn a standing with God. You serve the church because you've already been given one. And if I could just draw out one final idea here, we're told in God's word that the Holy Spirit makes a new creation. In Romans 4 verse 17 it says that he gives life to the dead and calls into existence that which does not exist. And so our spirits have been brought from death to life. And as we are now called to walk according to the spirit in the newness of life, rather than according to the flesh, according to our fallen human nature, I must ask, how are we doing with that today, Christian? In what ways, right now, are you walking according to the flesh? Don't brush this aside. Do not ignore this. What ways, as you sit in your chairs, are you being called to repent of your sin and stop walking according to the flesh as one who is enslaved to sin? You see, this passage is here in the Bible to give us an incredible amount of peace, an incredible amount of assurance in our salvation. Everything else in life is dependent on your performance, brother and sister, is it not? Your reputation depends on your performance. Your job status, your compensation, your position depends on your performance. Even your relationships ultimately depend on your performance. And on and on we could go. Are you tired yet? Are you exhausted? And for those who are in Christ, you have been adopted into the family of God, given entry and royal status in his kingdom, friend. You are now and will be forever safe inside his kingdom walls rather than destined for death outside of them. And so I urge you, dear friends, remind one another of this blessedness day in and day out that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. Thomas Watson put it this way, if you would have peace, make war with your sin. And that will take us into Romans 8, verses 15 and 16 next time. Now, as we conclude, I would be remiss if I didn't make it also painstakingly clear the obvious, that all of these benefits... All of these glorious realities are only reserved for those, as the text says, are in Christ Jesus. I think that should probably make sense at this point. This text is unquestionably geared towards those who have turned from their sin and put their faith in in Christ Jesus, who have forsaken all and thrown themselves upon Christ Jesus and his cross. And so to those here today who have not yet done so, who currently dwell, said a few minutes ago, outside of those kingdom walls in darkness, fending for yourself, unwilling to take that step and enter in, I'll be honest, I don't know your reasons, friend. I'm not going to try to for a second. Perhaps the church has hurt you in the past, 
Perhaps you've just seen people call themselves Christians and it's obnoxious because you constantly see them say one thing and do something entirely different. Assent to the truths of the Bible without actually living like them. Perhaps you've kind of just stiffened up your upper lip to the whole thing. You either say you're not afraid of death or you just keep distracting yourself away from the fear that deep down you really have. I urge you today, you do not want to come to the end of your life and come face to face with the holy and living God with your teeth grit saying, I am going to pay the price for my sin. I am committed to paying the price for my sin. Because you will forever. That is the worst decision you could ever make. And I mean that with all sincerity. Maybe for others, you're just waiting. You're enjoying the things of the world too much. You keep living one foot in, one foot out. Don't worry. God knows who you are. If you've been chasing your own way of life, tasting the things of this world, perhaps searching for your own heart's desires, let me just ask you, are you happy? Where has that gotten you? Just two chapters earlier in Romans 6, Paul says, What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. And so do you have everything you want? If not, when will it end? When will the pursuit come to an end? Or will you continue to chase it into your eternal grave? In any case, I want to invite you to turn to him today. Turn to Jesus once and for all. Turn to Jesus. You can today, right now. He holds open the gate for you. He holds open his hands for you. It's as I said last time in the words of Thomas Watson. It says, it is not unworthiness, but unwillingness that excludes those from the kingdom. You can be finally free today. Repent of your sin and turn to Christ. I opened up asking how one could ever escape That prison, ADX Florence, remember the most secure federal prison of the United States. It's never been done. It's never even been attempted. And I'll deliver, I promise, I have an answer for you. We could try to get into an elaborate scheme. We could talk about all of the good works one could try to do on the inside to prove how good they are or how good of a person they may think they are or about how sorry, genuinely, they think they are. But when that proves entirely ineffective and when that cry, that torment of hopelessness finally rings out that says, who will deliver me? Who will deliver you? Because there is only one way out of there. It's not a scheme and it's not a sob story. The only way out of there, the only way for someone to ever be freed from there is if they're actually found to be innocent. It's if they're found to be blameless. That's the only way. The judicial authorities have to determine that they've got the wrong person. Church, we know who we are. We know what we've done. And we know what we deserve. But we're not condemned. We are not condemned because the cross of Jesus Christ has set us free.
Just imagine that feeling of sitting in a fortified, inescapable, miserable cell, destined to die there. Now multiply that feeling by a million, and that's where sin will land you. And then one day, you see someone walking towards you, and the door unlocks, and you're free to go. Do you want that today? Because that reality can be yours. And for those who are in Christ Jesus, that reality is yours. Let's pray. Father, what a precious thought it is today to behold the reality that we are blameless in your sight. Give us faith today to believe these truths, to believe your promises and to by the power of the Holy Spirit bring our lives more and more in line with the reality that we have been set free from the dominion of sin and death. Lord, we love you. We need you. Keep us to the end, we pray. And it's in Jesus' name. Amen.